Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Happy New Year to all of you uh, listening to the show. On Zuma Radio, AM 740 out of Toronto, uh, the GTA across Ontario and parts of Quebec down to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota. All of you listening on one of our great affiliate stations and uh, around the world listening uh, online, live online at richardserrett.com and of course those of you listening uh, to the podcast. So, we all survived the end of the world, December 21, 2012, and, and welcome to the 14th Bactoon. I'm guessing there are a lot of Mayans out there who are still writing Bactoon 13 on their checkbooks. Uh, so much anxiety and, and, and stress surrounding the, uh, the supposed ending of the Mayan long count calendar on December 21, 2012. Uh, but I knew the whole time why the Mayans ended the calendar then. You see, they simply decided to replace the long count calendar with the 2013 Dilbert desk calendar. So there you go. So we start a brand new year, but we left a lot of people behind in 2012. Uh, We're still all uh, in a state of shock over the horrible shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Many of us lost loved ones of our own. And it's strange. So often they tend to leave us around the holidays, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. But even in death, there is hope. That's the message of this hour, really. My guest is a therapist, an author, and lecturer specializing in grief and dying. And she's about to present some pretty compelling evidence that there is life after death. Carla Wills Brandon has, over the course of three decades, researched nearly 2,000 occurrences when, at the moment of physical death, the dying were visited by departed loved ones who returned to help them to make the transition from this life to the next. In her new book, Heavenly Hugs, Comfort, Support, and Hope from the Afterlife, Brandon presents a riveting collection of real-life stories of departing visions and visitations from the deceased. Hey, Carla, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I'm in a really good place. No storms. You caught me at a great time. Uh, Terrific. You know, uh, the holiday season, Christmas, on into New Year's, uh, people, we tend to lose a lot of uh, loved ones during uh, Christmas and and, uh, throughout the holidays. Why is that? What is it about this time of year that people just seem to let go? Well, interestingly... I have had personally so many losses. I can't remember when I've had this many losses, and I'm 56 years old, so I've been around for a while. But I had two patients suicide. I had a friend suicide. I had a cousin overdose. I had another cousin die from cancer. I had another friend die from um, lung cancer, and the list can continue. And there are several things that happen here. Number one, as a clinician, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I deal with trauma, I mean severe trauma. Um, Oftentimes what happens is that there are those individuals who, uh, the two clients who committed suicide, both of them had history in their background that really, 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 they just couldn't work through it, and life on the other side seemed to be a really good option for them. Uh, the friend who committed suicide, he actually hung himself. His, his suicide was more about anger, the holidays coming up, um, expectations not being met. It was a, it, that was so, so sad. Whereas my friend Jesse, who passed, he basically, um, he knew that his passing was coming. He had lung cancer. 
he made some decisions about taking hold of his own um, trip to the other side, and he passed at home with family and friends at his bedside. Um, and then there are those individuals where it's almost an unconscious process where, and we see that a lot. Any of your listeners who, uh, right before the holidays, if they start opening up the obituary section of the newspaper, all of a sudden it just seems like, wow, why are all of these people passing? Um, there's also this unconscious process to, uh, some people what they'll do is they'll hang on and, uh, pass after the holidays. And then there are those individuals who don't want to be a burden to their families, and so what they do is, and this happens a lot with the elderly, they will, it's like almost like unconscious process, and they will pass before the holidays. So I really do believe that there is so much about death and dying that we don't understand. Uh, so many in our society are so incredibly, we have such a death-phobic society. And so what we see when we see all of these losses before and after the holidays, a lot of us, I know some individuals who they will not look at the obituary section for that very reason. Uh, some individuals, um, they won't go to funerals. Others become superstitious. We have some very unusual behaviors when it comes to death and dying. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's... <laughs> You know, people are gathered around the table and they, and they're talking about someone who's sick. They, they won't actually say the disease or what's going on out loud. They'll whisper it like, Aunt Sophie's got cancer, that kind of thing. It's hush hush. Um, uh, Carla Wills Brandon is with us, the author of Heavenly Hugs, her brand new one, Comfort, Support, and Hope from, uh, the Afterlife. And, uh, you've, you've worked with, with people that have been impacted by some horrible events. Uh, I know, you know, the, the Challenger space shuttle and, and the World Trade Center bombing and, and even Holocaust survivors, and of course, we just finished talking about this unimaginably horrific uh, shooting at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, I, I don't know if you've if you've um, reached out to any of the the families of the victims, or whether they've reached out to you. Or, but what do you say to someone like that who's lost a five or a six year old? To be honest with you, each situation is different. Some people will want words of comfort. It's, it really is about, it has to do with how we have handled deaths in our own life. So with some individuals, it's been my job to reach out and just a hug or um, holding a hand. Other individuals, they want to hibernate for a while. I'll never forget uh, one of the women that I worked with who was impacted by the Challenger explosion. Uh, she really was, she talked about being so numb for the first couple of years and how she just, you know, she had things she had to do and, and she wasn't real hooked into anybody or anything, but um, she was on automatic pilot taking care of business. And people thought that she was doing so well, when in reality she was on survival mode, and that's where she really needed to be. Year three, she crashed, crashed and cratered. Same thing for um, individuals who lost loved ones during the 9-11 uh, tragedy uh, and some of the other horrible, awful things that have happened in our country and in different countries. Um, what even Holocaust survivors, boy, I have worked with Holocaust survivors who 
they have just been on automatic pilot for decades, and that's where they need to be. For some strange and bizarre reason, our culture thinks that after the funeral, wow, if you are looking good and smiling and shaking everybody's hand, well, you must be over it. Uh, and that's just not the case. It doesn't work that way. Then if somebody is, if they hibernate and lock themselves away and they just want to be alone, well, all of a sudden people think they're they're not something, they need to get out more. Um, if a widower has lost a partner and they decide that they really, they're just not into getting hooked up anytime soon, but all of a sudden, their family wants them to come out for holidays and wants them to meet, oh, we have this cute neighbor down the down the road that we want you to meet. Um, and they're saying, no, 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 I just need to hibernate. What happens is that everybody, they, they personalize this. So we don't allow people to just be where they need to be. So with these parents who have had these horrific losses and and both my husband and I have worked with parents who have lost children. Each situation is very, very different. Some people will jump into that automatic pilot deal, and they will just go and blow, and they will keep themselves very occupied, very busy, and that works for them, and then they'll crash. And my job is just to be available for them when they do crash. And to let them know that that's, there's nothing, that's okay. This is their way. Others will need to hibernate, and they won't want to talk to anybody. Then there will be those who will be angry. They won't even be able to cry because they will be so angry. They will be angry at concepts of God, higher power, religious institutions. And so if a minister, priest, or rabbi tries to step into their house, watch out. Then um, there will, of course, be some who will turn to medications. Um, then there will be those who turn to um, alcohol or lack of food, too much food. Some will have what's called sundown syndrome where they get their days and their nights mixed up where they sleep all day and they stay up all night. And the bottom line is when somebody shows up on my doorstep, my job is to first of all just listen. I'm not supposed to tell them how, how that I know how they feel because I don't know how they feel. And if anything, that is what I say unless I have had their exact experience. So I lost my mother when I was 16. So if somebody were to show up in my office and they had lost a mother at a very early age, then I would say, you know, I might know how you feel. Uh, if I happen to have lost my spouse and somebody who had lost their spouse showed up in my office, then I might be able to say, I might know how you feel. But with these parents who lost these, it seems like such an injustice. So you will have some who will also turn to faith. They will turn to their religion, and that will work really well for them. Um, one widower I know right now, that's what's keeping him afloat is um, faith. And um, when I talk with him, uh, I have to be real cautious because that is his faith. It's not my job to tell him how he needs to have a faith, a life, <laughs> a religious life. I need to keep my mouth shut. All right, listen. And a we, lot of people... Well, uh, we're oh, going to take a time out here. Sorry, uh, Carla. When we come back, we'll talk about how this, this hope and support from the hereafter comes in the form of evidence that life does not end at death. And we'll get into that with Carla Wills-Brandon, the author of Heavenly Hugs, Comfort and Support, Sorry, comfort, support, and hope 
from the afterlife. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. set you free. But first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heavenly hugs, comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife. Carla Wills Brandon, PhD, is with us. Uh, 2,000 cases you've researched over the years, departing visions and visitations from deceased relatives and friends. How, how and where and when did you get started? Well, as I mentioned earlier, my mom passed away when I was really young, and at the moment of her passing, I woke up the exact moment, and I had just turned 16, and I got up out of bed, and I went downstairs, and uh, she was in the hospital, and I waited for the phone call informing me that she had passed on, and it came within a matter of minutes, and then I proceeded. I was one of those who became very numb. Um, I took my first drink alcoholically (laughs) of alcohol that very day and stuffed all of my grief because in my family nobody was talking about loss nobody had talked about her illness and thank goodness for alcoholism (laughs) i've been sober now for 28 years so that's that but that at that point that's what kept me sane now at that exact same moment in a different part of the city that i was in two other people in separate locations also woke up at the moment of her passing and they too knew that she had moved on they talked to each other but they didn't really talk to me because they thought that they would be upsetting me i didn't find out about their experiences until 20 years later and just this year i found out that my great aunt and my cousin also woke up at the exact moment of her passing so there were five of us who woke up now When I finally got my own act together (laughs) a few years later and um, had finished graduate school and had uh, started working as a clinician, um, I I was working specifically with trauma. And so uh, I would lecture around the United States, and I happened to be in the U.K., and I found myself in one of those old musty bookstores where the stairs go underneath the ground and you can hardly breathe. And, <laughs> and I found this book written by a guy named Sir William Barrett, who was a physicist. He and his wife, who was a gynecological surgeon, had collected accounts called Departing Visions. And when I started reading through them, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So those at the bedside of someone who's dying or those who know somebody who is dying can have some of these unusual experiences. Now, also during the same time, because I was working with trauma, of course I was working with death, so I had begun to hear accounts um, from the dying 
people who were getting ready to pass, uh, having uh, visitations from deceased relatives or visions of angels who had come to take them to the afterlife. And these experiences were always the same. It was always a deceased relative or loved one in these awake visitations or dreams, because they could come in dreams too, and if an individual felt fearful of death or dying, once they had one of these experiences, it was comforting. Now, as a clinician, I've also worked with people who have had some real bona fide hallucinations. And if I were to have 10 people come into my office in one day, all of them suffering from hallucinations, each one would have a different hallucination. With a departing vision, what I began to notice was that, wow, there seems to be some real consistency here, that with these individuals, it's deceased loved ones or relatives who have come uh, to escort them to an afterlife. Also, the dying would report uh, leaving their bodies like a near-death experience. Uh, Some of them would report going through a tunnel, uh, going to an afterlife, and having uh, alternative dimension experiences. And then what they would do is they would come back because they weren't quite ready to go, and they would try to share these experiences with doctors and nurses But, of course, sadly and unfortunately, doctors and nurses typically would not want to hear about these. And so they would try to share these experiences with their family members. If family members were open, it was great because then that broke the taboo of we can't talk about the fact that you're getting ready to pass because you have cancer and there's nothing more we can do about it. And let's tie up unfinished business. A hundred years ago, a hundred and fifty years ago, when somebody was getting ready to pass, they died at home in their own bed with their own pets, with family around the bed, and if they had a departing vision, what they would do is they would share this with those at the bedside, and because death was part of the landscape, children would be at the bedside too. And people would ask questions. Did you see grandpa? Did you see mom? Did you see my wife? Did you see my brother? So during those times, there was this belief that when we were getting ready to pass, we had one foot in this world and one in the next. So it was very, very different. But with materialistic, traditional science, what has happened is that These experiences have been pushed to the side because most people tend to pass in nursing homes or they pass in hospitals. Also, they pass medicated, over-medicated, as opposed to pain management for pain, which happens when people do suffer certain illnesses. So in looking at all of this, I thought to myself, holy cow, you know, this is really interesting stuff. So then I came across this book called... um, at the hour of death, and it was written by Erlinger Haraldson and Carlos Osis, these two psychologists from Iceland. And as a matter of fact, I am in touch with Dr. Haraldson. He's a kick. He really is. He's 85, I don't know, early 80s, and he's now moved from investigating departing visions to looking at reincarnation with children. But they did a huge longitudinal study. 
what they did is they took a look at Sir William Barrett's work, and they put together a questionnaire. And they took this questionnaire to thousands upon thousands of healthcare workers, uh, doctors and nurses, not only in the United States, but in India. So they did a cross-cultural study investigating what happens, what do you see, what goes on with your patients when you are watching your patients pass, die. And what they found were more very interesting concepts. Same thing. Uh, It wasn't like a traditional hallucination. Uh, The visions always involved deceased relatives, friends, angels, some religious icons. Um, If a patient was combative before, after having one of these experiences, they calmed down and they had no fear of death. Um, It didn't matter if a person was religious or agnostic. Uh, it didn't matter if a person um, had was part of the New Age, had heard about the New Age movement. Back then they called it Eastern uh, uh, oh, philosophies. They didn't call it New Age. Or if they were uh, just sort of your average Joe. Um, medication didn't matter. Uh, type of illness the individual was passing from didn't matter. Uh, Oxygen deprivation was ruled out. So what they did is they did this huge, huge study. And since then, there have been a number of other studies in Holland and Ireland and um, uh, parts of, uh, oh, my goodness sakes, I was just looking at one from Italy. Even the VA, the Veterans Administration, a branch of the Veterans Administration in California, have done studies on the the uh, deathbed vision, and they've all basically found the same thing. Unfortunately, it's still a closeted discussion. It's still a closeted topic. I think it's one of those uh, things that nurses or, or emergency room personnel will talk to you off the record but probably don't want to be quoted. Oh, they definitely don't want to be quoted. I'm actually in the process of writing um, an article for White Crow because this is my third book on The Departing Vision, and um, I have a re-release of another book called A Glimpse of Heaven with a publisher out of the U.K., and so I'm putting together an article on medical caregivers and their reactions to The Departing Vision. And so you have a majority who will just kind of poo-poo it. Uh, right down the street from where I live, believe it or not, on this, on this island I live on, there is a major medical school. And uh, trying to set up to replicate uh, Haraldson and Osis' uh, study, I didn't get anywhere. Nobody, they were not interested whatsoever. Um, because they're just, they, it's still seen as there, there's not this understanding that consciousness is not a byproduct of the brain. Consciousness is non-local. Quantum physics is showing us that. And what quantum physics is saying is that consciousness is outside of our physicality, but that it is influenced by our physicality. So if you want to, kind of how I look at it is <laughs> we, have, we have DNA and genetics and, and we have our physical bodies and, and we have consciousness which 
squeezes into this physical body and then is impacted by our genetics and who and our physicality it's not the other way around but unfortunately a lot of the medical community continues to to believe that uh, consciousness is a byproduct of the brain and that once we die and brain function ceases well consciousness is gone well, based on near-death studies, uh, those individuals who die and come back to life, uh, what we're seeing is that individuals have, they are flatlined. There is no, <laughs> there is absolutely no, doing a brain scan, there is no, no activity, zip, zero, nada, <laughs> going on there. So, um but unfortunately, you have these materialistic individuals who they just fight it tooth and nail. Comfort zone, uh, fear, um, really having to take a look at how we're thinking and dealing with things like palliative care, end of life care. Right, All right. of that comes into play. All right, listen, when, so, we, uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what some, some of these uh, care workers or family members have reported seeing at the moment of death, uh, when a loved one passes, uh, things that they've seen uh, emanating from the body, apparently. Let's let's talk about that, and, and then historically, what what people who have been on death's doorstep have have reported. Uh, people like you know the great composers, and uh, and even one of the popes uh, will do all of that with Carl's will, uh, Carla Wills Brandon, author of Heavenly Hugs, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Carla Wills Brandon, the author of Heavenly Hugs, and um, uh, we're talking about uh, evidence that life does not end with uh, death. Now, I'm not sure if it was part of uh, this this wide-ranging study or this is uh, something that you've sort of gleaned from your years of research, but but. There has been something seen repeatedly leaving the body at the moment of death. What can you tell me about that, Carla? Well, I included an entire chapter on this in the latest book, and what I'm thinking about doing is doing an entire book on it next. Um, I'm not the first person to notice this. Uh, anybody who has done any investigating into the departing vision has come, has knocked up against this. Raymond Moody, the famous near-death experience researcher who recently did a book that included departing visions, he found this. Kubla Ross's, uh, uh, protege, I can't remember his name, um, he also, uh, really took a look at this. Um, what, let me just give you a brief example. My husband is a licensed clinical psychologist. He's as meat and potatoes as you can get. <laughs> he's, he's, he was a materialistically, uh, scientifically minded, uh, oriented individual who came from a family of Holocaust survivors. His, his father was actually, uh, 
a bigger-than-life individual who uh, went back and rounded up all the family in concentration camps and brought them back to the States. And after seeing what he saw, he, he considered himself to be an atheist. So it was a when-you-die-you-eat-worms you sort of deal there. But when my father-in-law was passing, um, my husband sat with him. And as his passing uh, got, became near, within a day or so, my husband saw something leaving uh, his father's body, and it was a vaporous, cloud-like, uh, multicolored um, something. And he came rushing home. And, and you have to remember, this is my husband, the meat and potatoes man. I had already written my first book on the departing vision. And he he was just beside himself. He couldn't believe it. He said, I saw something leaving Pop's body. Uh, shortly before this, a cousin of ours who was very religious with regard to her religion, uh, nobody would call her a new age person, uh, very, a, a school teacher, she also saw a vaporous a vapor leave her mother's body at the mo at the exact moment of passing. And so over the years, I had collected a number of accounts uh, from individuals who had witnessed this. And uh, William Barrett, he had accounts of this nature, as did some of the other earlier uh, investigators. And there were a bunch of these early investigators, uh, late 1700s, 1800s, um, who reported these things because, as I said, Back during those days, it was common for family and friends to be at the bedside of someone who was dying. So they, it has been described as a cloud, a luminous cloud, a vapor, a light. Um, so some accounts have reported even seeing uh, a duplicate of the individual who has who is in the process of passing, um, but uh, it's it's uh, it's like how do I explain it? I can't even find words. But it's it's like a duplicate, but it's more of a vaporous form, if that makes any sense. Right, like a silhouette of that person, a silhouette um, of that person, or a silhouette. That's a good word. Um, also, individuals have reported waking up uh, at the moment of a passing before they know there's a passing and at the foot of the bed they have seen a vaporous uh, orb-like something and they have known intuitively that it's their their loved one and then they receive a phone call uh, and they're, in, they have, they're being told that their loved one has just passed or they see as you described a silhouette or they see um, in full body form a loved one. One of the accounts that I included in this latest book involved a man who he was sitting at his breakfast table and all of a sudden he saw his mother or grandmother, I can't remember which, knocking on the window and he thought she had just come by for a visit. And then he received information that no, at the moment that he had seen her, she was passing away at her house. So um, I think the most fascinating, though, is the report of seeing something leave the body, because that's just that's really really hard to dismiss. Now I, I'm not minimizing these other experiences at all, 
but it is hard to dismiss sitting there at the bedside of someone who is getting ready to pass and seeing something grayish, bluish, uh, whitish uh, just leave the chest area or the head area. So, as I said, it's something I really want to investigate it some more. Um, I, 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 I may even have two chapters in this latest book. I don't remember. <laughs> is there, has anyone but, taken a photograph of this, whatever this is, the essence of that person leaving their body? There's a guy in Russia. He's a Russian physicist, and he's been around for a while, and he wrote a book called Light After Light. And he... He does photograph with Curlinger photography. Um, he photographs the soul leaving the body. And this is something that he's been involved with. Um, good grief, I've been doing this for quite a while. So um, he's been doing it for at least 25 years. And I know that he also now has moved on to using this uh, for looking at certain types of illnesses in the body and uh, has developed techniques for uh, photographing and then treating illness. But what he discovered was that when he would do these photographs, that there was a difference between somebody who died slowly and somebody who passed suddenly. And he, of course, he took into account things like, because he was also doing uh, measurements with weight, he took into account things like uh, vapor, natural vapor, moisture leaving the body at the moment of death. And uh, he took into uh, account when photographing uh, the soul leaving the body, he took a look at um, normal, natural breath that would be leaving, uh, perspiration that would be leaving. So, yeah, there are some people out there, we're not going to hear about them in the mainstream media, of course, who really are taking a look at this, and the majority of them are doing this. If they're not with a university, they're like me, and they're doing it on their own dime, and they're often receiving ridicule from traditional mainstream mainstream folk. But we're very committed to investigate. I think it's a, it's something we really need to take a look at if we can. Oh, for sure. Learn. I mean, you're doing the you know the old expression. You're doing the Lord's work, Carla, because the best comfort for someone who's grieving is to know that their loved one isn't gone. We'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Heavenly hugs, comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife with Carla Wills Brandon right here on the Conspiracy Show. You stay with us. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Carla Wills Brandon. Comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife. Heavenly Hugs is the name of her, her new book. Now, when someone is ready, when they've gone through, well, they're still in the midst of grieving, but when do you find it a good time to impart this information to that person who's grieving, to let them know, listen, there's lots of evidence out there that, that your son or your daughter or your husband, your mother, they're still with us. Yeah. As I said before, everybody is really different, um, and it's like walking on eggshells. So 
I may get somebody who comes in who, okay, so for example, there was the individual who was dying of lung cancer. I, his wife had passed away before him, and this was before he, this was before he um, announced that he was sick or even knew that he was sick. I knew that he was ready to read. I sent him have, uh, One Last Hug Before I Go, which was my first book, because there, I just had a sense that he was in a place where that would be very comforting for him. Then when he was on his, when he was getting ready to pass himself, there was a wonderful uh, article that was put out, a newspaper article, and I, it was out of Pennsylvania. And it involved a man and a woman who died within relatively a short period of time with, with each other. And uh, as one, after one passed and the second was getting ready to pass, uh, the second began reporting seeing their spouse and uh, the words were, pull me up, pull me up, take me with you. It was just a wonderful article. And so I sent that to him. So that was that situation. Um, with this most recent widower, I won't be sharing any information with him because he is just not there right now. I could just feel it. Um, and it's a sense. So in working with people who have had losses like this, it's really important to respect where they are because there is no right or wrong. So the individual who's not ready to have this information, um, that's his journey. That's his spiritual journey. That's his process. And for me to push on him information, that's me. I would be disrespecting his journey. Whereas the other widower who was so ready, it was my obligation to get the information to him as soon as I Good. So I think that for your listeners out there, if I, if I can say anything about dealing with the grieving, uh, whether it's a friend or a relative, tiptoe around the tulips. Try to see where it is they're at. Uh, they will let you know real quickly if they want information like this or not. Nothing is more difficult for certain grieving. As I said before, there are those grieving who are, they really, they want faith-based information, and then there are others who are so angry that the mere discussion of it will send them into a rage, and they need that rage at that point in time because that rage is keeping them going. So it's about having some awareness. This may be unanswerable. It probably is, but uh, I'll throw it out there anyway. And that is, why don't most of us receive um, some sort of a, a departing uh, a vision from a loved one or, or, or after they've gone, why don't we get some sort of a, a, you know, a communication with them? Why is it just a select few? You know, people used to ask me that question, and I would not have an answer for that. And now I have my own Carla-ism. <laughs> uh, years ago, I went and I did some work with Raymond Moody. And um, it was with a psychomantium, which is an old mirror-gazing technique. And, and centuries ago, what people used to do is they would gaze into a bowl of water or uh, at a mirror or, or some sort of reflect reflection and... And what would happen is they would have visitations from deceased loved ones after death communications. 
And so I became friendly with Dr. Moody, and uh, several of us went to his place in Alabama, and we hung out, and he had psychomantiums built into his house. <laughs> this is a dedicated researcher. Oh, and Diane Sawyer even went and did an interview with him for 2020 uh, about his psychomantiums. And, and I was a real skeptic, a total skeptic. And I thought, well, I'll give it a whirl. So he had four of them in his house. And so the first couple that I went into, I sat and I cried and I was upset because my grandmother had just died and she had filled the shoes of my mother and was so important to me. And, and, um, and then we had dinner, and I, ha- I had no desire to participate anymore. I was going to go catch a nap, and and something nudged me to go into the last psychomantium that I hadn't tried. And I went and I sat down, and and I was just relaxing. And um, all of a sudden, uh, it got very cold. The temperature dropped, and I, I just kept saying to myself, "What can I learn from this? What can I learn from this?" And suddenly, these orb-like vectors uh, emerged, vapor, cloud, from uh, the mirror that I was looking at. Now, the room was completely dark. It's a very small room, um, and there's just a mirror, and that's it, and a chair. Now, I could hear Raymond in the other room. He was talking about he was upset about his gardening or something. I can't remember. But I just sat there, and I and I actually got a little freaked out because then the orbs started to make physical contact with me. And um, one of the facilitators walked by, and she came in, and she asked me if I was all right, and I told her what was happening, and she said, do you want to quit? And I said, no, I think I need to continue. And so I did. I continued with this, and I had one orb go through me in my heart area. And it was the most amazing experience of love. I can't even... I couldn't talk about it for four years. Let's just put it that way. My word. I couldn't. Te- I couldn't tell anybody about it. I was. It. It. Di- it really. It did me in. Um, I knew intuitively that every single one of my relatives and my deceased loved ones were there. I knew it. And so, um, as I said afterwards, it took me some time to process it, and then I finally included it in uh, this recent book and the last book. But my point being that. For years, I did not, after the one experience with my mother, I, I didn't feel anything from her. I had, uh, I didn't have any contact with anybody, my grandparents who passed away, nobody. And so now I have different ideas about that. And some of those ideas have to do with where I was on this side and where they were on that side on, in the afterlife. Uh, where I was on this side in my journey, where they were uh, in there. We, we take ourselves to the other side, and we continue to grow, and I'm a firm believer in that. Um, and so I, don't, I think that just because someone doesn't have an experience, uh, they may be having experiences in their dreams, and they may not be remembering them. That's another thing I want to throw out there. So I think it's kind of like if you look at it like this, I have relatives who live in different parts of the country, and I have relatives who live in Israel and the U.K. and in in Germany, and sometimes I don't hear from them. I I just don't hear from them. Um, Some of them I haven't heard from in years. I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what it is they're up to or what they're doing. So... 
if if your listeners can just look at it as a situation where life continues, um, our journey continues, our growth continues, and that for whatever reason we may not be receiving the visitations we think we should be receiving or we may not be receiving the visitations from the from those specific individuals we think we should be receiving and uh uh we should be having encounters with um so i think it's there's a lot more to it it's not quite so simple as well am i just not that psychic or i'm not trying hard enough or uh, what is the deal here? So the, the simplest thing to do, and I even had someone tell me to do this again when I was very upset about uh, the clients and the friend who committed suicide. Uh, even authors like me who research this stuff have to be reminded. Get a pen and get a piece of paper and have it by the bedside. And before you go to bed, visualize your deceased loved ones in your mind's eye and ask them to come visit you in a dream. And then upon awakening, write down how you feel or write down um, any uh, dreams you have. So that's the easiest way to address that. That's uh, interesting, just a final note, because I, you know, I, I've never considered myself to be the least bit uh, psychic or intuitive, far from it, uh, even though I talk about this stuff constantly. I'm just not that person. And yet, as you're, as you're saying this, I constantly have dreams about uh, departed relatives. and But it, there's nothing exceptional about the dream. It's just like we're continuing on. There's Uncle Bob sitting across the table and my dad, both gone, and they're, we're just eating supper. And there's nothing remarkable about what's being said. It's just really kind of banal, you know, past the ketchup. So is that <laughs> is that, uh, is that spirit communication? Yeah, that's them. Look, dreams are very interesting. Uh, I've used dreams in trauma work in order to work through trauma. Uh, so we have stress dreams, which are very symbolic. And so like after my mother passed, um, I would have these dreams about being lost in the cemetery and I couldn't find her. Well, that's a kind of a trauma stress dream. It was in black and white. There was nothing. It was, it was more about me working out my stress. Or if I'm mad at somebody, I'll have some sort of symbolic dream about them. And, um, and then the trauma dreams, we can have memories of trauma in our dreams that can come up or we can have symbolic experiences that are related to our trauma. But when we have when we can cross through that that doorway to the other side in our dreams, what we're going to see see what one of the things that Barrett discovered in working with uh the parting visions is that when children reported uh seeing angels, the angels didn't have wings. When people report near-death experiences and they encounter the light or God, they rep- they, what they mostly report is just this big being of energy. So it's, and it's, a lot of people when they report after-death communication dreams, it's like Bob and Dad eating meatloaf and pass the ketchup, please. Yes. <laughs> and they just kind of look at you and basically the message is, hey, we're okay, you know, just, uh, just want to let you know we're doing fine. It's reassurance. It's a way to reassure us, to let us know that uh, life does continue and everything is just, and we're here and, and we're, we haven't gone away. And, uh, but yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, indeed, it's it's comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife, and and uh, a, a great time of year to impart this as we uh, uh, venture forth into 2013 and think back on all those that we left behind, knowing that they're still out there enjoying their meatloaf, as it were. Uh, That's Car- right. <laughs> Carla, thank you so much for this, and happy New Year. Well, thank you so much. Heavenly hugs, comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife. Hey, thanks for listening. That's it for me. A special thanks to Dan Ellison. My old technical producer has come back, sitting in for Tim Spreen, my uh, my new producer who's um, vacationing in Japan right now. Dan, great to have you back, and thank you. Uh, next week on the program, The Paranormal Equation, a new scientific perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena, James D. Stein. PhD. You remember him from uh, How Math Explains the World. He'll be on the program next week. Hope you'll be along for that. Say hello on Twitter, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.